This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com future. Most of us have memories of a beloved childhood pet. Yeah, I had two toads, and oddly enough, they barked like dogs all night long. But I loved them anyway. Mine was a rabbit, and his name was Freckles. And I remember having to trek out through the snow to deliver his single scoop of pellet food every day, which I was not particularly fond of. But the next generation of children could grow up with pets that never need to be fed and could be put on mute. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. In today's episode of Popular Science's Futuropolis, we're talking robotic pets. Designing the perfect robotic pet won't be easy. That's because everybody has their own idea about what a pet should be. Or look like. Or do for us. Ask any two pet owners why they love Fluffy or Fido, and you'll probably get very different answers. Some want a cute and cuddly companion while others prefer an exotic status symbol. And then there are those trained animals that guard homes or guide people who are visually impaired. We've been trying to define what a pet should be for quite a while. Way back in June of 1893, Popular Science mused, What is required for an everyday pet is that it shall be beautiful and intelligent, that it shall neither be too large nor too delicate, and, if a bird, that it shall sing or talk, preferably both. While pets are clearly important to a lot of people, it will likely be harder and harder for us to keep them in the future. As the global population grows and resources become more scarce, having actual animals as pets could become a luxury. That reminds me of Philip K. Dick's sci-fi classic, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It imagines a post-apocalyptic future in which only wealthy people can afford real pets. The rest of the population gets stuck with robots. But would that really be so bad? I mean, maybe robot pets could be better than real pets. They wouldn't eat you out of house and home. And you can forget about pet allergies. Plus, you wouldn't even have to take them out for walks or pick up their messes. That would be nice. So if robot pets are in our future, what will they be like? We got a glimpse of that back in 1998 when Popular Science wrote about a prototype of Ibo, Sony's robotic dog. It won't roll over, but the entertainment robot being developed by Sony engineers obeys hand signals to walk, sit, stand, lie down, and exhibit its distinct personality. The cat-sized playmate comes equipped with a 64-bit central processor and has a modular control architecture that lets you swap the four legs for wheels or a combination. Future versions may be capable of recognizing voice commands. And that they did. While the metallic toy didn't look exactly like a dog, it could be a reasonable substitute. Here's Gail Melson, a psychologist from Purdue University who has studied how people react to real and robotic animals. There is some research with Ibo in a um, independent and assisted living uh, with seniors. And there, Ibo was a social lubricant, for example, um, A colleague of mine gave Ibo to a resident to keep in their room for a period of weeks. And when they would take Ibo out to the lobby or the dining hall, uh, it acted as a magnet. 
of other residents coming and wanting to know and wanting to see and turn Ibo on, let's see what he can do. Uh, can I hold him? So people can bond with these machines, and that leads to some unexpected reactions. John Lou Rowe, who researches animal behavior and welfare at the University of Melbourne in Australia, describes what happened in Japan when Sony discontinued Ibo. Sony marketed that uh, robotic dog called Abo from about 2000 to, uh, I think, 2006, 2007. And they used to have what they call tech clinic, when people could go, and if uh, the robot had anything deficient, like a little part or not working properly anymore, uh, people could go and fix their, ask them to fix their robotic dogs. Now, Sony stopped producing that uh, robotic pet, and they ran out of parts. So two months ago, they closed their last, what they call tech clinic. And they, because this uh, tech clinic got closed, then people got desperate. And now, um, two months ago, they started organizing funerals for their robotic dogs. It may be hard when robot pets get phased out, but real animals don't live forever either. True, and robo-pets could also be more useful than real animals. Here's Dan Goldman, a physicist at Georgia Tech, who designs robots that model real animals. The pets you'll have will sort of have aspects of, of every potential pet, right? It will be a snake that can, you know, slither under your bed to find toys. It'll be a dog that can, that can read your emotions and, and have some sense of how you're feeling and respond accordingly. It'll be a bird which can you know, potentially soar above you and, and look for uh, fun things to do or, or bad places to avoid. And it may not even have to have that physically because it'll be all connected to the, to the Internet. So your future pet wouldn't necessarily have to be a robotic bird. Could be a dinosaur. Or a 3D printed unicorn. Suffice it to say, kids may one day be able to get creative with their robotic pets. And that day may not be too far away. Here to talk with us about what our techno pets may or may not look like in the next decade is Bill Smart, a mechanical engineer who works with social robots at Oregon State University. But first, a word from our sponsor. (laughs) This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. If you're a mobile app developer, check out Braintree. Braintree is the payment solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and Munchery. Braintree has made the payments experience in these apps seamless and magical, even futuristic, you might say. And now you can add a similar experience to your own app. With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support, plus fast payouts, means you'll be prepared as your company grows, from your first dollar to your billionth. Braintree is helping solve the problem of mobile cart abandonment by offering a best-in-class mobile checkout experience. Check it out for yourself. Braintree gives you a full-stack payment solution, support for all payment types your customers might want. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more, all with a single integration across all platforms, with superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. To learn more, and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com future. And now, back to the show. So my name is Bill Smart. I'm an associate professor in the robotics program at Oregon State University. 
And uh, the work in my lab sort of revolves around um, human-robot interaction, how to get robots um, and people to play nice together. And when, we, when we're sort of translating in that into bringing robots maybe into our homes or into our lives in general as, as sort of a pet, what are some examples of how we're working on that in that context? So I, I guess the first robot that really made it into our lives was uh, the Roomba, the floor cleaning robot. And it wasn't designed as a pet, but anecdotally, what people have seen is, what people have reported is that uh, people play with it. They, you know, they treat it not quite like a cat, but they, they interact with it in ways which they wouldn't interact with a traditional vacuum cleaner. And so there's been a, uh, I, I believe there are websites dedicated to videos where people are interacting with their, their Roombas in a, in a, in a pet-like way. But Yeah, I've seen the cat on a Roomba. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. a popular one. I, I think, I, I think robotics, you know, little robots like that that you live with, you know, you form this bond with them and you, you start to treat them in a way that you wouldn't treat another machine. Um, but we start to see um, robots which are explicitly designed to be pets in the past uh, few years. I mean, the, the, the famous example is uh, the Paro uh, therapy robot, which is looks like a little baby seal, and its purpose is to be a companion to uh, older adults who might not be able to keep a pet because they live in an assisted living residence or and. The, the actual goal of that robot is to mimic a pet. So we're, we're really starting to see this come out into, um, into reality now. And it seems like a, a seal would be a strange choice. What's the advantage of having that as opposed to a cat or, say, a dog? Well, I, I think that we're, we're very attuned to what's wrong with something that tries to be something else. So if you had a cat, if you're, you know, most people are very familiar with cats. And so if you built a robot that was meant to be a cat, and it was mostly cat-like, but it was just a little bit wrong, it didn't do all the things a cat would do, I think that would be really noticeable. With a, taking an animal that you, you're sort of generally familiar with, I mean, everyone knows what a baby seal looks like, mm-hmm. but we don't really know how baby seals are meant to react. And so there is no, you know, you can get it a little bit wrong and people won't notice. You're eliminating the expectation, essentially. Right, right, exactly. And it, it, it's, I think it's a, a really smart choice because it doesn't have the mobility that a, that a cat would have to have, right? Seals kind of sit there and they wiggle. Um, and so mechanically, it's a simpler system. You don't have the expectations or the very, you know, the fine grain expectations you would have with uh, a dog or a cat or something that you were very familiar with. And do you think that that comes into play with our ability to bond with it? I mean, on some level, if it looks like a cat and I'm a cat person, I find like it might be easier for me to make a connection with it. Right, right. I think, I think that really depends on, on the person, right? You know, we're, as humans, I think we're very, we're almost eager to bond with things. You know, people give their cars names and, you know, they, they give personality to things which are inanimate. Um, you know, kids play with stuffed animals and give them the whole backstories. So I think we're, as humans, we're sort of primed to bond in this social way with things. And I think having something like Paro, which takes advantage of some of the things which are hardwired to us, it has, you know, it, it, it's small, it's furry, it has large eyes. I think it it encourages people to bond with it. But I think, um, you know, depending on the person and depending on, you know, their their life experiences, I think bonding with these things in some way and I, I, I don't know how deep that bonding would actually be, but I think bonding in some ways is almost a given. So when we're talking about bonding with an animal, are there certain 
characteristics or traits that we should be incorporating into robots to make them more bondable, I guess? You know, you, you probably wouldn't bond as well with a, a robot crocodile as you would with a robot kitten, for example. This is true. And so, you know, people are predisposed to like certain animals, I guess. Um, you know, dogs and cats and rabbits. And so, you know, the I, I think building robots that are in that part of the animal space would probably lead to more bonding. Disney, in their animations, have this sort of set of guidelines of what makes a likable character. You know, one of the things is big eyes. And, and I think... That you know, those kind of roles probably come to play with uh, when you when you're thinking about uh, uh, this sort of robot pet. And you use the example of the Roomba, which is certainly designed to be a functional machine. And then we've got the Paro, which is more like it is designed to be cuddly and um, have an emotional connection. Do you think that robot pets we're going to think of them as machines or animals or some sort of weird middle ground in between the two? I think ultimately it's going to be some middle ground. Um, I think when you're interacting with something, you once you become familiar with it, you, you tend not to think so much about the mechanism, what's actually going on behind the scenes. So I, my guess would be that if you interact with Paro for a while, you stop thinking of it as a robot. It becomes, you know, just another thing you interact with. At, at some level, you know, if you if you think about it, then you know it's a robot. But as you interact with it, you'll probably find yourself doing things that you would do with animals. And so I, I think it really does fall in the middle. One of the things I think of with pets is teaching kids responsibility. There's so much involved with taking care of an animal. Is that something you think we would lose if we, if we move into a realm with robotic animals? I think, you know, the, there's certainly that risk because, you know, it is, a, you know, it is a mechanism. A robot pet would be a mechanism and it wouldn't die if you didn't feed it. Um, it's sort of an, it's an interesting, I guess, an interesting ethical question of if you're going to replicate a cat, if you're going to make a cat robot, do you make a cat robot that can die if you don't feed it, or it can, you know, suff- apparently suffer from pain if you if you hit it with things? Um, so I think the idea of closely replicating an animal and using it to uh, replace a live animal, especially in like a kid's life, um, I think that raises just a, a whole slew of interesting questions. Absolutely. And to sort of take it on a dark tangent just momentarily, how do you think people will treat these robotic pets when they know that like there isn't necessarily a life involved? You know, people torture Sims or say terrible things to Siri on their phone. Are we going to do the same thing to robotic pets? I, th- I think probably. Um, and I think this, the behavior you see with Sims characters or you know, other mechanisms that you anthropomorphize a little bit, I think we'll probably see them in robotic with uh, robot pets. Um, robot pets are embodied. They have a, like a physical presence in front of you. So there may be, I, I think the details of the behavior will be different, but I think, you know, people are people and I think they'll, you know, they'll treat them broadly in a broadly similar way. And perhaps some of that is sort of provoking a reaction and seeing what it's going to do. Yeah, I think I, I think so. I mean, especially um, you know, I, I have a, a five-year-old boy, and he constantly pokes at the world to find out what's going to happen. Mm. You know, he constantly, you know, if you give him a, a, a machine, he'll he'll test its limits. And I think people will do that with these robot pets. 
Um, and I think, you know, a lot of it will be interesting. It'll be the same as, you know, you give someone a Roomba and they will see if they can get it stuck or they, they can see if they can trap it in a corner. I think a lot of it will look very similar to that. Which is interesting to think about because with an animal, there's a certain amount of unpredictability. You don't know how it's going to react or it doesn't know how to react until it's in that situation. Do you think that's going to be programmed in so there is a certain amount of, you know, things that we can anticipate? Um, I don't know if it'll be programmed in because you know, what you want as a robot developer is for things to be as predictable as possible. But if these these robots react to sensor information, if they have cameras pointed at the world or other sensors pointed at the world and act because, because of the information coming in on those, um, then there will be an element of unpredictability to a human interacting with it just because these sensors will be returning different information every time. You'll never be able to show it the same thing twice and have it behave in exactly the same way twice. And I think people will, my guess is that people will take that and sort of interpret it almost as free will or as almost as agency in the robot. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we, I think we're kind of wired to do that. We're, robots are, are, are one of the few things in the world that is not alive that seems to act based on stimulus, that seems to act as if it's alive. And so I think people will play with these things, see them do things which they can't immediately predict, and I think perhaps in interpret that as a, a form of uh, agency. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I wonder with some of these things, if the reason it is creepy to us to see these semi-animal-like things is that that's just not something we've grown up with. Could this change generationally? Like if your five-year-old son has been surrounded by robots, do you think it will be a normal thing? I think it, it, it absolutely can. Um, you know, if you, if you were to have this conversation in 100 years, um, it's entirely possible that people wouldn't see, you know, would, would think it was strange we were even having the conversation of would it be weird to have a robot pet. Um, I think it's, 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 all of our experiences are, are, are framed by what we grew up with and what we're used to. And so I think, you know, if you were to grow up where robot pets were the norm, everyone had a robot pet, then it would be just part of the background. If, if we're very much turning this into a pet, we're going to get attached and not want to have to say goodbye, just like we don't want to say goodbye to pets now. How do you think that'll play out when it's a technology that is going to get outdated or perhaps break as opposed to something that dies? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, that's, a, that's sort of an interesting question. So if you have a robot pet and it breaks, then you pick up the phone and I can send you a replacement which is completely identical. And I can download everything in your old pet's memory into your new pet's memory. Um, I mean, there's a very fundamental question of is that the same pet to you? Or is it, is it a replacement? Um, and I think I, I've, I have no answer for that. Um, <laughs> we find the philosophers, perhaps. Yeah, because I think, you know, with a pet, you create that attachment. You don't want to have to say goodbye. Whereas with technologies, we always want the next best thing. And so we could be treating pets, these robotic pets, in that way and trying to always upgrade or, or get the next, next version. That's an interesting thing. Do, do we get into a pet arms race where you know, I've got a better robot dog than you and I keep upgrading my robot dog? Because there are certainly a number of pets that are already status symbols today just by their breed or what have you. And I think, I think the question is more interesting with robots because 
you know, most people would find it unconscionable to get, you know, to, let's say, euthanize a pet to get a new pet because it was the, the, the new cool breed. But, you know, a robot's just a machine, so there's no, um, there's no stigma, there's no ethical dilemma about getting rid of a machine and upgrading it. So do you think you'll ever get a robo-pet? Um, probably not. Why not? Um, I, I work with robots all day. I, I kind of like interacting with people and real living things. Yes, there are inherent advantages to that, aren't there? There are, uh, although um, my, uh, my kids have a guinea pig, and I think a robot guinea pig would be easier, easier to look after. It wouldn't need cleaned out as much. It's true. There's nothing worse than having to clean up after pets. Are there other advantages you see with replacing animals with robots? I, I don't know. Um, I think, you know, we, we see with Paro, um, it, it fills a niche. So um, older adults living in uh, assisted living often can't, aren't allowed by the rules of the facility to have pets. And so if you have a robot, then you can, you can get around some restrictions on having live animals. Maybe get some of the benefits. You know, Paro's starting to to show that there are real benefits to having something like this in your daily life. And so I think that I think there's utility in it in uh, very specific cases. I think people are still really attached to animals, though, just for uh, just because of you know what we are. Um, so I don't I don't see real animal pets going away. Um, I see you know maybe robot pets, robotic pets, filling parts of the space of pet ownership, but not, uh, certainly not all of it. Yeah, maybe the spaces where people can't currently have pets but want to. Right, right. You know, I imagine if you lived in uh, a large city in a very small apartment, and it would be just logistically difficult to have a pet. In fact, I can imagine that, <laughs> <laughs> living in a small apartment in New York City. Right, right. And so, you know, that, I think there's a, there's a utility to doing that, but I think... My guess is that most people, if they didn't have to make that trade-off, would probably prefer to have a living pet. And um, I, I, I can't say why I think that, but I think, I think that would be the case. If you could just take a wild guess, how long do you think it'll be till these are integrated into our mainstream society? Uh, it's always a tricky question asking when robots are going to be out in the world, any kind of robot is going to be out in the world. We're starting to see Paro being used quite widely in Japan. So I wouldn't be surprised if in my lifetime we see some kind of commercial pet ownership where you can go and buy a pet to have in your house. The, the real question is, I guess, whether when it will when stop becoming a novelty. So for a long time, robot vacuum cleaners were, they weren't very good, but you know, some people had them either as a status symbol or because they really liked technology. And I, I can see that happening with robot pets sooner than them being in the in the mainstream consumer society. We've gotten past the early adopters. Yeah, I think I think we're on the maybe on the cusp in the next decade or so of getting early adopter um, early adopter robot pets. You, know, you may see them in uh, in flight magazines for sale or something. <laughs> yes, that's the cutting edge there when it comes to technology, right? Right, right. Well, perfect. I'll plan on. Checking back with you in approximately a decade to see how, how close we've come. All right. Yeah, so I also have a friend, a few friends, who have gotten really into this app 
Um, it's a Japanese app called Niko Atsumi, I believe. Okay. Can't speak Japanese, but um, the whole app is just you watching these little digital cats on your smartphone and feeding them. Oh my God, that's all it is? Yeah. It's like Tamagotchi. It is. Except maybe with a few more buttons. Yeah, and well, less buttons, more touchscreen, ah, and uh, yes. more colors. Which would be nice. I do remember those tiny pixels as like eggs. Did you ever try to kill your Tamagotchi just to see what it would take? I don't think I did. I think, I don't think so. But I did think it was strange that it was on a keychain and nobody who is nine has keys. That's true. Maybe you could put it on your backpack. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Futuropolis. If you want more, you can check us out at popsci.com or on Twitter at popsci. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Crowdwell. Thanks to Sophie Bushwick, as always, for being our voice of the archives. And thanks to our intern, Levi Sharp, for production help. Thanks also to Henry Malofsky at Panoply. Futuropolis is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Thanks for listening. See you next time. In the future.